0: Hey, good morning, crowd family, and happy, happy Sunday. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 10 through 24 is today's text. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 24. We're now in part 15 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, as always, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, verses 1 through 9. And remember, the Corinthian believers apparently had written a letter to Paul that contained some questions on matters on which they requested guidance and direction about marriage. Uh, is it more spiritual to get married, or is it more spiritual to stay single? And one camp was encouraging sexual abstinence in marriage, and another camp taught marriage was wrong or unprofitable, therefore it's best to stay single. So Paul's now going to address some of their questions about marriage and, and singleness. And he starts by quoting, quoting their letter. Look at verse 1 with me. It is good for a man not to marry. A, a better translation is it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So Paul says, yeah, it's good to be single. Nothing wrong with being single. It's good to be single. But look at verse 2. Verse 2. But since he says there is so much immorality... In other words, sex outside the boundary of marriage. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So, so in light of the danger of the temptation of sexual immorality, it's appropriate, Paul says, it's appropriate for a husband and wife to have each other in a sexual sense. Now remember, Paul's not saying sex is the only reason or the most important reason for marriage. He's not saying that. We've got to, we've got to put this in its context. That's not his point. He's simply answering their specific questions about marriage. And what he's doing, he's addressing uh, those who said it's more spiritual to be single. And Paul's saying, no, no, it's not more spiritual to be single. It's okay to be single, but it's not more spiritual to be single. And you see, Paul Paul was stating the obvious that everybody can't be single, especially in the sex-oriented culture of Corinth. The desire is too strong. Temptations abounded. Therefore, marriage is necessary for most people. Look at verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So he's saying that a husband and wife, listen now, owe it to each other to be physically intimate. Got it? There's a mutual sexual responsibility in marriage. The husband has obligations toward the wife and the wife has obligations toward the husband. Look at verse four now. The wife's body does not belong to her, to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. So your spouse owns your body in the marital sense. In the marital sense, your spouse owns your body. You own each other's body. It's a signed transaction that says, "I'm yours." Your mind. Look at verse 5 now. We move on. He says, Do not deprive, do not rob or defraud each other. Speaking of sexual activity, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer to come together again. Why? Why? Well, listen now. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. So Satan can tempt the spouse into sexual infidelity because he realizes. Satan realizes that the self-control level is low. Verses 6 and 7, Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. So Paul's not commanding people to get married. I mean, marriage is not a must. But look at verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am. In other words, unmarried or single. But each man has his own gift from God. Did you get that? One has this gift, speaking of marriage. Another has that, speaking of singleness. Now, though Paul knew singleness was good for him, uh, he wouldn't impose it on anyone else. And you see, the important thing is what gift one has from God, either being uh, gifted to singleness or, e- or either being gifted to to marriage. And Paul regards both marriage and, and singleness as gifts from God. Paul then gives advice to the unmarried and, and the widows, uh, and the preference is to remain single. Look at verse 8 with me. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say... It is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. And Paul explains why, because in in verse 32, which we'll look at that next week, because there there are some advantages to being single. Then in verse 9, Paul says that the passion that cannot be controlled should lead to marriage. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, Paul says, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, he's saying it's far better, listen now, it's far better to marry and exercise the gift of sexuality in a a legitimate manner than it is to practice fornication. Now, I want to say this, and remember this, this is not justification for running off and getting married quickly because you're burning with passion. No, no, that's not what it means there, okay? That simply helps you to determine helps you to determine which gift God gave you. And if, listen, if you're burning with passion, singleness is not your gift. That's what Paul's saying. Singleness is not your gift. This now brings us to today's text. And the title of today's message is Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. Say that, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. Now, our culture in America, just like in Corinth, accepts divorce as a practical solution uh, to solving complex marital problems. Now listen, in America, in America there is, there is one divorce approximately every 36 seconds. That's nearly 2,400 divorces per day. That's 16,800 divorces per week and 876,000 divorces per year. The average length of a first marriage that ends in divorce is eight years. And friends, you know what the tragedy is? Even Christians are getting divorces at an alarming rate. In fact, friends, listen now. In fact, the religion with the highest divorce rate are evangelical Christians. You see, these divorces occur when biblical principles are either unknown, ignored, or openly violated. I want to share three points with you from today's text. If if you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Number one is this. Very practical. Number one is saved couples. Write that down. Saved couples. And here Paul is writing to those who are equally, those who have equally yoked marriages. Saved couples. And then we're going to look at verses 10 uh, through 11. And Paul says, to the married, or it could be now to the married. And I want to stop there because remember in this chapter... Paul answers questions written to him from the Corinthian believers, and we already saw in verses 1 through 9 that he dealt with the questions about marriage and singleness, right? Is it more spiritual to abstain from sex in, in a marriage relationship, and is it more spiritual to remain single? So here when Paul says to the married or now to the married, this indicates that, that he's moving uh, to another question, and, and these questions and answers have to do with marriage and divorce and remarriage. So he says to the married, and here he's addressing marriages where both partners are Christians, right? To saved couples. Now, now remember, remember now. Remember some some of the Corinthian believers wondered if it might be more spiritual to be single. Therefore, they should divorce their spouse uh, for the cause of being more spiritual. Well, Paul answers their question straight from the heart of God, and Paul says, absolutely not. Let's read on. I give this command, not I but the Lord. Did you get that? I give this command, Paul says. Uh, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. He says a wife must not separate from her husband, verse 11, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. So everything that applies to the wife Also applies to the husband. And so here Paul, what he's doing, he's repeating and emphasizing the teaching that Jesus had personally uh, given during his earthly ministry and he's referring to what Jesus said about the area of divorce and remarriage in Matthew chapter 19 write that down Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 9 Matthew 19 verses 3 through 9 and Matthew chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5 verses 31 through 32 in fact you can turn to Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 9 right now if you you know that'd be great if you can do that and and their question speaking of the Pharisees was one of much debate in their day. And it seems that there were two schools of thought in Jesus' day about divorce and remarriage. There were two rabbis, two rabbis whose teachings had gained widespread influence. And one was a rabbi named Shammai. Shammai, and he was more of a conservative rabbi who taught that a divorce could only be granted because of sexual immorality. And Shammai taught that any kind of sexual sin any kind of sexual sin broke the marriage covenant and released the innocent party to marry again. The other rabbi was a man named Hillel. Hillel, and he was more of a of a, um, a liberal rabbi. And he taught that a man could could obtain a divorce for any reason whatsoever. I mean, if his wife burned his breakfast, or if she spoke to another man in the street, or if she developed a wrinkle on her face, or if if he simply saw another woman that was much prettier than her, he could write her a certificate of divorce and send her out of his home. And this was the the prevailing, prevailing view in Jesus' day. And as a result, divorce was running rampant in that society. I also want to point out that in in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, the real issue at stake uh, was not marriage and divorce. It was simply that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, and and as usual, Jesus simply outmaneuvered them, right? He outsmarted them. Uh, Let's let's look at Matthew 19. If you're there, Matthew 19, uh, verses 3 through 9, we are going to spend some time there, Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. It says, Some Pharisees came to him, speaking of Jesus, came to Jesus to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, I love that, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall what become or will become one flesh. So they came to Jesus, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, what about divorce? And Jesus simply responded by asking, what about marriage? What about marriage? And he reminds him that when a couple comes together as a husband and as a wife, that they become one flesh. And what he does, he goes back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Verse 6 of Matthew 19, let's read on. So they are no longer two, he says, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, I love this, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let let, let no one separate. Let let no one put asunder. Okay, so he plainly states that this is a union, listen now, a union that is not to be dissolved by man. Then, then the Pharisees want to know why Moses allowed them to divorce, and Jesus answered by reminding them that divorce was allowed for one reason, and it was the hardness of men's hearts. Let's let's read on, verse 7 of Matthew 19. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. You see, according to Jesus, according to Jesus, marriages are intended to be lifelong, that there be one husband for one wife for one lifetime. In fact, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God says that he hates, he hates divorce. Divorce is contrary to God's original plan. Now let's look at verse 9 of Matthew 19. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, Jesus says, except, here we go, except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman, commits adultery. So what Jesus does, he gives the the only legitimate exception from the di- from the divorce rule, and he says that in the event of some illicit sexual activity on the behalf of one spouse or the other, divorce is permissible. Permissible. Okay. Now he doesn't command it, but he does allow it. Matthew chapter five. Let's look at Matthew chapter five, verses thirty-one to thirty-two. Matthew five, verses thirty-one through thirty-two. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except, there it is, except for sexual immorality, makes sure the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Come on, if you're safe, say amen. Listen, instead of worrying about how we can get out of a bad marriage or about what God allows or doesn't allow Why don't we try to make our marriages successful? Why don't we try to make our marriages work? Listen, listen now. Divorce must not be seen as an easy option, friends, to escape problems. As Christian married couples, we should commit ourselves, say that, commit ourselves to each other and to working out, working out problems in our relationship. Marriage is not easy, but we must work it out. And if it means to go get marriage counseling, then go get marriage counseling. And I want to say this. If your marriage is lacking or if your marriage is in trouble, then you ought not to dwell upon how your spouse is not meeting your needs. But rather get biblical counsel as to what you need to change in your life in order to be a better husband, in order to be a better wife. Now listen, a happy marriage is not a myth. It's not a myth, friends, but a very real possibility, listen now, when we do it God's way. Got it? Do it God's way. Now, we always have a lesson, and here's a lesson. Are you ready for the lesson? Here we go, is honor the marriage commitment. Honor the marriage commitment. Be committed to your spouse. Are you guys with me? Be committed to your spouse. As believers, listen now, we have a different standard than the world. And God has called us to a biblical standard to marriage relationship. And friends, his word, listen now, if you read his word, his word is very clear about marriage, about the sanctity of marriage, about the commitment in the marriage relationship. And We need to understand what commitment is. We need to be committed to the commitment in our marriage relationship. Now listen, friends, the Bible doesn't say be committed to each other as long as you both shall love or as long as you get along or as long as you both are healthy or as long as you both are wealthy. No, listen, God honors the marriage commitment, so understand what that commitment is. And that commitment is, listen now, I will be with you, listen now, with you no matter what happens in this life until we die. To death do us, part Ephesians 531 says for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave say cleave cleave keyword cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh in the hebrew the word cleave is debak debak And it means to be glued to to be cemented to to be welded together got it welded together you see marriage is for good it's forever it's for life so we need to value our vows, right? Value our vows, friends. Honor the marriage commitment. So number one is saved couples. Number two, point number two is spiritually mixed couples. Spiritually mixed couples. If you're still with me, say Amen. And here Paul is addressing those who are uh, those in unequally yoked marriages. Got it? Look at verses twelve through thirteen. To the rest. Now, I want to stop there because this indicates Paul is now shifting the focus from the group he previously addressed, which was what? Saved couples, to now addressing any man who has a wife who does not believe and the woman who has a husband who does not believe. And you see, friends, some Christians in this category have gone against scripture and married someone that was not a believer. Others in this category have become Christians after they were married and their spouse has not yet become a Christian. So let's let's read on here. I say this, I, not the Lord. Did you get that? Paul says, I, not the Lord. Now, I want to say this. We shouldn't think Paul is any less inspired by the Holy Spirit on this point. When, when, when Paul says, not the Lord, he simply means that Jesus didn't teach on spiritually mixed marriages. Got it? Paul is being inspired to write this. He simply says that Jesus didn't teach on this subject of spiritually mixed marriages. Then he says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not what? Divorce her. Did you get that? Verse 13, if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Listen, God doesn't want us, listen friends, Christians, God doesn't want us to be unequally yoked. In other words, for a believer to be married to an unbeliever. But if you're, listen now, already married to an unbeliever, then you need to stay married. These verses clearly teach that the believer is not to leave the unbeliever as long as the unbeliever chooses to stay in the marriage relationship. It's very clear, right? Now, Christians often rationalize and say, I was married to my spouse before I became a Christian, but now, but now that I'm a Christian, I don't believe that my marriage was made in heaven, therefore it's not valid, and I think I ought to be able to get a divorce <laughs> and establish a real Christian home. And Paul said, uh-uh, uh-uh, not so, not so, because God acknowledges marriage, just that God acknowledges marriage as valid for unbelievers as well as for believers, Now, listen, it may be tough to live with an unbeliever, but God's grace is sufficient. And Paul's point in the text here, Paul's point is that the Christian is never, is never to initiate a divorce with an unbelieving spouse. Okay? Verse 14, if you're still with me, say amen. uh, Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified... Through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, let me tell you what this doesn't mean, okay? What this verse doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that an unbelieving spouse or the children in such a home are automatically Christians. Got it? It doesn't mean that. What it means is that they are sanctified or or holy in the sense of being set apart. Set apart. Listen now, get this now. Set apart by the presence of one believing spouse. I want you to follow me here, okay? Follow me here. As a child of God, listen now, as a child of God, you are His vantage point to reach them. I mean, who else on earth will pray more passionately for them, right? And Paul says, Remain married as, listen now, as a sanctifying influence. I love that. Sanctifying influence in the relationship. You see, your, your presence, got to get this now. And I love this. Your presence as a believer, excuse me, your presence as a believing wife or as a believing husband in your family has an effect of influence that could lead that unbelieving spouse to Jesus. Got it? A home is set apart when a husband or a wife or a family member is a Christian. That's what Paul's saying. And just one Christian in that family can so grace, so grace that family with the right kind of influence that God, listen now, that God would bless the family because of the believer. You see, the believer is a conduit, a conduit of God's blessings. God's blessings flow to you to you and and through you. Well, there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. And get this. Okay, here's a lesson. Look for opportunities to influence others. Look for opportunities to influence others. I love that. Okay, whether it be an unbelieving spouse or an unbelieving relative or an unbelieving friend or, or neighbor or co-worker, look for opportunities to show and to share Christ. Got it? Be the influence. Let's move on, verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, this is what Paul says, let him or her do so. A believing man or woman is not bound. Got it? You're not bound In such circumstances. So the unbeliever leaves, you're not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So again, if the unbelieving spouse willfully, willfully deserts, walks out, and refuses to stay in the marriage, then the believing spouse, Paul says, is to let him or her go. The believing spouse is not under obligation to plead, to beg, to bargain, or force the unbelieving spouse to stay. Now, notice carefully, I want you to notice carefully it's the unbelieving excuse me the unbelieving spouse who initiates this action not the believing spouse if you got it say got it so here the only other other escape clause in scripture for a biblical divorce is abandonment there it is right there abandonment and the other one we know that is adultery that we saw in Matthew chapter 19 now listen and i want you to get this i believe that god does not expect a christian to remain living with a spouse who is physically or verbally abusive to them or to their children. Are you with me? I don't believe God would expect a Christian to remain in a relationship like that. A person has to act as to protect themselves and their children in those types of situations. I just want to say that, okay? So, so keep in mind, although scripture allows for divorce, and it does, right? And it allows for divorce under certain circumstances, it never encourages it. Divorce, listen out, say, divorce, divorce should only be pursued when all other approaches have led to a dead end. Now, the text says, let him or her depart. And it says if you let let him or her depart, and it says you are no longer bound to that relationship. So you're free, and you're free to remarry. He or she becomes the unmarried in verse 8. And the believing spouse is now free to walk through that divorce and now free for remarriage. That's what Paul's saying. Let's look at the text again. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. This is what he says now. But God he says, God has called us to live in peace. Say that God has called us to live in peace. So If the unbelieving spouse wants to go, Paul says, let him go. The believing spouse has no choice in the matter, right? And should be peaceful about the situation. Just peacefully let them go. Just let them go. Be peaceful about it. Romans 12, 18. Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let them see that you're peaceful about this. You got it? Live at peace with everyone. Look at verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So there's always, right? Paul's saying there's always a possibility the unbelieving spouse will be saved. There's always that possibility, right? And this is why the believing spouse should hang in there as long as possible. Now, I want to say this. The believing spouse doesn't actually save the unbelieving spouse, but becomes the instrument that God uses to save the unbelieving spouse. And the most likely instrument God will use in salvation of the unbelieving spouse is who? It's the believing spouse. So, when one marriage partner is saved, that person should immediately seek and pray for the salvation of the unbelieving spouse. Now, I know, I know, you know, Sometimes it's not an easy thing to do. In fact, it can really be frustrating at times for people in this situation. And there are wives, there are wives, listen now, who have prayed for the salvation of their husbands for 20 years or longer. There are several women here at Cry Out who are praying for their husbands' salvation. And they've been praying for a long time. And I I see the prayer cards and the request, Pastor Please pray for my husband to come to Jesus. And, and, and I want to tell for those of you women who are praying for your husbands, don't give up. Don't give up praying for them. You, you keep on praying. You keep on praying for them and live the Christ life before them as a daily witness to the grace of God. You keep praying. Don't give up. What comes to mind is my parents my parents, when when they got married, they were not believers. Then, uh, just after they got married, my mom became a Christian, and and my daddy was not cool with the Christian thing. He didn't like it, and uh, so my mom prayed for my daddy for seventeen and a half years. Seventeen and a half years, and um, you know, I'm sure it was difficult at times for her to continue to pray. I'm sure that there's times that she wanted to just get out of the marriage, but she prayed for my daddy for 17 and a half years. And I'll never forget one morning we got up. My mom would always take me, my brother, my sister to church early in the morning. And one morning my dad says, you know what? I want to go to church. And we're like, what? We were just shocked, right? He says, I want to go to church with you guys. And we're like, wow, okay. So we went to church and I'll never forget in the service, I was sitting down with my brother and my sister and my dad during the altar call. My dad got up and he ran, he ran to the altar. And he got saved. It was awesome. And he had never been the same since then. Now he's in heaven with the Lord. But my mom prayed for him. And he got saved. And, you know, I believe it was my mom's influence and example that she had that brought him to the Lord. Now, let me give you, I'm getting emotional here. Let me give you the do's and don'ts for leading your unbelieving spouse to Jesus Christ. Okay, first let's look at the don'ts. Okay, first of all. Don't nag. Got it? Don't nag. Don't nag your spouse. Another thing is don't drive religion down their throat. Don't do that. Don't drive religion down their throat. Also, don't give them a miserable time for not coming to Christ. Got it? Don't give them a miserable time for not coming to Christ. Also, don't make them pay for not converting. And lastly, don't expect them to walk the Christian walk. Why? Because they can't. They're not Christians, that's why you're praying for them. Now let's look at the dues. Do be patient with them. Be patient with them. Do be tolerant with them. As difficult as it might be, be tolerant with them. And do pray with all your heart to live in patient love with your unbelieving spouse. And finally, do remember Peter's words. Write this down. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1, verse, verse 1. Excuse me, 1 Peter 3, verse 1. And Peter writes, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that, listen now, if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Now, husbands need to do what they're commanded to do also. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, 1 Peter 3. Verse seven says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Got it? The don'ts and the do's. Got it? So make sure you remember that. And then someone say amen. Point number three. Okay, we had saved couples, spiritually mixed couples, and point number three, and just write this down. Point number three is this, stay where you're set. Stay where you're set. Write that down, stay where you're set. And after Paul addresses the married couples and the spiritually mixed couples, he says, stay where you're set. Look at, let's look at verses 17 through 24. 17 through 24. Nevertheless, each one should remain, excuse me, each, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. Say, called him. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised circumcision verse 19 circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing keeping God's command is what counts did you get that keeping God's command is what counts each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him verse 21 were you a slave when you were called do not let it trouble you although if you can gain your freedom do so for he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord, is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, or likewise, he he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You, verse 23, you were bought at a price. There's that, that phrase again, right? You were bought at a price, okay? And it was a massive price. Do not become slaves of men, okay? Because you belong to Christ. Brothers, each man, verse 24, each man as as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God has called him to. So, so I want you to follow me here because Paul uses some really, you know, just his verbiage is, is a it's you kind of what is he saying here? Well, in these verses, Paul is basically what he's doing. He's basically illustrating that whether you're married, happily married or unhappily married, or single, or divorced, widowed, remarried, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave or free. He's saying God can work in your life. Therefore stay where you're set. Live out your calling. Walk, live and serve God, he's saying, in the place where you're where 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 you are right now. Honor Christ where you are right now. That's what Paul's saying. And you see it's not a matter of changing your status he's saying or your situation in life as much as seeing that that status as much as seeing that status or situation as a sphere of influence for Jesus. Okay, in other words it doesn't matter nearly as much whether you're married or single or divorced or remarried what matters Paul says more is an on fire walk with Jesus Christ right now. Right now, that's what he's saying. What Paul is ultimately saying is our situation, get this now, our situation is never as important as our salvation. Our condition is to never outweigh our calling. And if we're saved, if we're saved then we've been called to live accordingly, and that means be a Christian where you are whether you're single, married, divorced, widowed, whatever it is, be a Christian where you are. What's important, what matters, is not our position, not our situation or status, but our willingness, Paul is saying, he's driving at, to obey God and be used right where we are. That we follow Him right where we are. That we can seek God's best and be used by Him right where we are. We need to stay where we're set. We need to stay and bloom where we're planted. Now, I want to just close with some questions here. You might have some questions such as, what if I had an unbiblical divorce and I'm not remarried? Well, you are to remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. Now, if your ex-spouse has been remarried, then you are free to marry. What about the question? If if I had an unbiblical divorce and I'm remarried now? Well, you obviously can't, you obviously can't be asked to divorce your present spouse, right? That's you can't do that. But but what you can do is you can ask God to forgive you and allow Him to cleanse you from that sin. 1 John 1.9, right? We know this 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, right? Righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What about this question? What if I am currently going through an unbiblical divorce? Well, stop it. Stop it. Remember what verses 10 and 11 said? To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. So you need to seek Christian marriage counseling. How about this question? What if I am currently going through a biblical divorce because of sexual immorality? Well, if that's the case, then the Bible is very clear that you have grounds for divorce. But you should forgive your spouse and reconcile, if possible. And finally, the last question is this. What if I committed adultery? If I, if I committed adultery, can adultery be forgiven? Well, the answer is found in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians Chapter 6. We already covered that, right, a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, where Paul says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers. do you get that? And then he goes on to say nor male prostitutes, nor normal sexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And verse eleven he says this. And that is what some of you were. But you were what? Washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So yes, adultery can be forgiven. I want to end with this and close with this. And I want to say this. Divorce is forgivable. I also want to say this. There is life after divorce. Got that? Divorce is forgivable. And also, listen, I want to say this. Divorce Christians and divorce non-Christians need our love. They need our embraces. They need our encouragement. And they need our time. Let's not forsake those who are divorced. And yes, yes, it's true. As I said earlier in Malachi 2, 16, I believe, that God does hate divorce, but he loves divorced people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts today. And might we, Lord, honor the marriage commitment, the covenant And might we look for opportunities to influence others? And Father, might we stay where we're set, where we're planted, and live out our calling. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Somebody, please say amen. Now, before we close, as always, I want to give for those of you that are listening who've never given your life to Jesus, to give you the opportunity to do so. If that's you, you need to admit that you're a sinner. To acknowledge that you need a substitute and you need to accept Jesus as Savior. And so if that's you and you're listening right now and you want to follow Jesus, you want to give your life to Jesus and be saved, I want you to bow your head and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, I invite you into my life today to save me, to cleanse me from my sins, and to change me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. I am born again. I receive you this day. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus. I am born again, and I will live for you faithfully from this day forth until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have you said that prayer? We love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at cryout.org. That's contact at cryout.org. We would love to hear from you. All right. So I hope you enjoy the message and there's just a lot to take in. And I just hope that you have a blessed Sunday. I love you guys and miss you. And we're going to get together in person soon, hopefully, and uh, just pray for our leaders as we get together. and. Find out when that's the best time to do so. So be patient with us. And we love you and take care. And I'll see you next Sunday. God bless.